The Thanksgiving holiday is born out of extremely difficult times in history. History tells us about a time of horrible religious persecution, of insurmountable adversity, and extreme physical deprivation. That's our history. That's early American history. But it is in history and in God's Word that we find the biblical reason for the Thanksgiving holiday. Why God would have us celebrate the holiday, what its purpose is. You know, I don't know if everyone enjoys history like I do, but you have to love the answers that students write in response to Bible and history questions. One student wrote, Moses led the Hebrew slaves to the Red Sea where they made unleavened bread, which is bread made without any ingredients. Or Moses went up to Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments, and he died before he reached Canada. And one of my favorites is, Solomon had 300 wives and 700 porcupines. Or a Christian should only have one wife. That is called monotony. You know, there was one morning where Chuck Swindoll read a similar list and read the answer that was given. The epistles were the wives of the apostles. And after the service, a woman came up to him and said, well, if they weren't the wives of the apostles, whose wives were they? So why do we study history? Why do we want to take look closely at the history of the Thanksgiving holiday? And why is history so important? Was history just invented to, to bore school kids with dates to remember and kings and wars to study and that have no relevance to our lives today? A common answer, as you may have heard it, is we study history so we don't repeat it. But it also really is true that the only thing we learn from history is that we don't learn from history. Yet the Bible gives us a biblical purpose for the study of history. And we find it in Psalm 78, beginning with verse 1. So if you have your Bible, please turn to the 78th Psalm. In the 78th Psalm, we find the biblical purpose of history. Why we are to know history, why we are supposed to tell its stories, uh, stories like the pilgrims and the story of the pilgrims. And we read in verse 1 of the 78th Psalm, Listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old. The phrase dark sayings refers to difficult questions. Questions where the answers are not readily seen. Enigmatic questions. Questions we might not get the right answer on. Verse 3. Which our fathers have heard and known and our fathers have, have told us. These are stories which have been handed down generation after generation. In other words, history. Verse 4. We will not conceal them from their children, but tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and His strength and His wondrous works that He has done. For He has established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded to our fathers, that they should teach them to their children. Why? Why were the parents and grandparents commanded in the Old Testament to teach the stories of history to their children? Why were they commanded to recount the stories that spark praises to the Lord and tell of his strength and the wondrous works which he has done? 
verse 6, that the children or that the generation to come might know even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children. And now in verse 7, we're going to see the reason why we all need to be taught the stories of faith and the faithfulness of God, why we need to hear the stories, why our kids and their kids need to hear the stories. Verse 7, here it is. That they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart and whose spirit was not faithful to God. How do you know when you or your children and your grandchildren face difficult times, and if we know they will face difficult times, we're facing difficult times right now. The worst global pandemic in a hundred years. This year in our country has seen the worst hurricane devastation on record. And out in the West, the worst wildfire and forest fire devastation on record. How do you know when we face difficult times like this and our children face difficult times that they will not turn their backs on God? How do we know that they will put their comfort, comfort, our confidence in God no matter what they go through? How do you know you, know you will be loyal to God and have hope even in the worst of circumstances? The psalmist answers, because this generation and the next generation and the generation after that have been taught the stories. They've been taught the stories of faith and the praises of the Lord, of his strength and his wondrous works that he has done. What is the source of our hope? How do we have faith and have hope when we face difficult times? It could be the loss of a job or the loss of a business, the loss of health, the loss of a mate, the loss of a parent or a child a pandemic or all the, and all that goes along with that, or we hear that horrible word, cancer. Or we listen to the news these days, or we go to our app or, or whatever it is, and just about the time we think things can't get any worse, we click on the next news story or listen to the next news story, and day after day after day, there's the next worst thing over and over again. Please turn over to the 15th chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans. Romans chapter 15, the fourth verse. Paul expresses in Romans chapter 15 that everything written down in days gone by was written for us. It was written for us for what we go through today. The difficulties we face today are bearable, are bearable because God in his word tells us of the faith of men and women who have gone before us and in that we have hope. Verse 4 of chapter 15 of Romans. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. Whatever was written, that is our history. Whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. Why? So that. Whenever you see the word so that in scripture, it means there's a purpose coming. There's a reason. There's a why that is given. So that through perseverance, and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Hope. This Thursday is the Thanksgiving holiday. 
The word holiday comes from two words, holy and day. It's a holy day. Holy means to set apart. It means to set it apart for a purpose, to be special, to be unique, to be like no other day on the calendar. So Thanksgiving is a holy day that is set apart for a specific purpose. And the purpose of a holy day is to remember, to celebrate, and recount the story of the holiday in such a way that it instills in us hope, perseverance, and confidence in God for those of us who hear and celebrate the story. At Christmas, for example, we re recount and celebrate the event, the story behind the holiday. That is the birth of our Savior and all that that means. And remembering that event gives us hope. At Easter, we recount and celebrate the resurrection event. 1 Peter 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And celebrating that event and having that special day, we have that living hope of the resurrection in Jesus Christ. Passover is a good example of a holy day where God's word tells us that the purpose of the holiday is to recount and remember the event in such that we and our children, our children's children, should put our confidence in God and not forget the works of God and keep his commandments. So as long as I have you turning pages in your Bible today, turn over back, turn back to the sixth chapter of Deuteronomy, clear back in the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 6. And we'll begin at, at verse 6. Here in Deuteronomy chapter 6, this is part of what is called the Shema in Hebrew. The Shema. Shema means hearing. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then in verse 6 of Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses commanded the people of Israel, saying, These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. In other words, all the time, in everything that you do, you shall talk about these words. You shall teach them diligently uh, to your children. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Now, when you celebrate a holiday, one like Passover or Christmas or whatever it is, it's inevitable that your children are going to wonder, what's this all about? Why are we doing this? What do the symbols mean? Why do we celebrate Christmas? Why do we do Easter? Why do we celebrate Thanksgiving? Is it just to have get presents or, or have a great feast? But likewise, the Hebrew children would naturally reach a point where they would ask, why do we celebrate Passover? Why do we do this every year? What's going on here? Why do we eat the bitter herbs? Why do we say certain prayers? Drop down to verse 20 of Deuteronomy chapter 6. It says, When your son asks you in a time to come, saying, Why do the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments mean that the Lord our God commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, We were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Lord brought us from Egypt with a mighty hand. 
What is the Hebrew father doing? He's telling the story of the Exodus. He's telling the mighty works of God and what he did. He brought them out of Egypt. Verse 22. Moreover, the Lord showed great and distressing signs and wonders before our eyes against Egypt, Pharaoh and all his household. He brought us out from there in order to bring us in, to give us the land which he had sworn to our fathers. So the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for good always and for our survival as it is today. It will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all the commandments before the Lord our God, just as he commanded us. What is the purpose in telling the Hebrew child the story of the Exodus and recounting the mighty deeds of God and the praises of God? It is so that our children might fear the Lord for their good always for their survival. For survival, that they would put their faith in God, they would put their trust in the Lord God, their deliverer, no matter what, no matter what they go through. That they would not be a stubborn generation, so that they would not be a generation that has not prepared its heart, a generation whose spirit was not faithful to God, that they would live righteously before God. You see, the stakes are higher than just getting the right answer on a history or a Bible test. It's not whether we or our kids have the right knowledge necessarily, but how it translates into hope and faith and perseverance and loyalty to God. We need to be immersed, and we need to immerse our children and grandchildren in the stories of faith. Stories of faith. From Scripture, as the book of Hebrews says, such that of Gideon and, and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, David also and Samuel and the prophets. And we need to also be immersed as well in the great stories of faith of those who have gone before us. We need to read, and your kids and your grandkids need to hear stories like Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret. How in China... Hudson Taylor lived a life of faith and trust in God amidst the worst of circumstances. What was God doing? Or the book Through Gates of Splendor. The story of how in spite of the murder of the missionaries in the Ecuadorian jungles, God brought that tribe to faith in Jesus Christ. Or the more recent book and movie, uh, the book by Steve Saint, whose father was one of the, the murdered missionaries, called The End of the Spear. A remarkable story of forgiveness and friendship, of hope, of being able to give forgiveness, but also being able to receive forgiveness. And you have your stories. What were the circumstances at a time when you trusted God? You knew him to be faithful when everything else was against you. Our children, our grandchildren, and the kids that we influence need to hear your stories. When I was growing up, I loved to hear people tell stories. All of us do. So I'm going to tell you a story this morning, a true story. I heard it told the way God wants stories of faith to be told several years ago by Greg Harris. Over 30 years ago, actually, it was at a homeschool seminar called How to Teach History in the Home. 
Now, everyone who tells a story has a different style, and everyone has different interests and things they want to emphasize. So I'm not going to tell the story of the pilgrims the same way Greg Harris did, with the same details. In fact, I have a vested interest in this story, because on my grandmother's side of the family, my ninth great-grandfather, who was an indentured servant, Edward Doty, came on the Mayflower and was a signer of the Declaration, or not the Declaration of Independence, signer of the Mayflower Compact. And then on my grandfather's side of the family, my ninth great-grandfather, Thomas Pound, came to America, joined the Plymouth Colony in 1635, and married a woman who came on the Mayflower as a child. But you know, you don't have to have a personal connection to tell stories of faith. In fact, I was telling the story of the pilgrims this way even before I even knew how much my family was involved. Because we keep the same goal in mind when we tell stories of faith. To tell the story in such a way, whether it's the story of Daniel or the pilgrims or, or whatever it is, to tell the story in such a way that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So this is the story of the pilgrims, the way God wants it told, so that our children might have hope, that we might have hope and be loyal to God. So that we might have hope when we go through tough times, as we're going through now. So first of all, I'm just going to ask some questions and answer them. Who were the pilgrims? Who actually were the pilgrims? They wouldn't have used the word pilgrim of themselves because they didn't really see themselves making a pilgrim pilgrimage in the strictest sense of the word. They spoke of themselves as Puritans. They called themselves Puritans as opposed in belief to what they called the Episcopal Party. Now, the Episcopal being the Protestant Reformation as it was in the Church of England at the time. The Episcopal Party was, was the Church of England. And the Puritans, as they wanted to, to see it, they wanted to purify the church as it were. They wanted to establish the right worship of God, as they put it, and the discipline of Christ in the church according to the simplicity of the gospel without the mixture of men's inventions and be ruled by the laws of God's word as dispensed by pastors, elders, and teachers, etc., according to the scriptures. And so some Puritans tried to work within the established structures and purify, have God, and ask God to purify the church from within. Others saw it as too far gone, and so they worked without. They were called separatists. And because of their separation from the established church, the separatists faced heavy persecution. The men were imprisoned. There was a loss of employment. There were whippings and floggings, and some of the separatists were even executed. A law was passed that made it illegal for them to leave England. And finally, a group of about 300 of the separatists were finally able to escape to the Netherlands, to Holland. And so the Puritan separatists found themselves and their families in places like Amsterdam and Leiden in Holland. And having come from an agricultural background, and now they find themselves in a large city which based on the fishing trades, they had a tough go of it for, for several years. But William Bradford, who had become the governor of the Plymouth Colony, wrote, At length they came to raise a competent and comfortable living. 
through only by dint of hard and continual labor. So they grew in knowledge and other gifts and the graces of the Spirit of God and lived together in peace and love and in holiness. So why did they leave what he called the lower lands, the, the Netherlands, when they had peace and love and holiness and graces of the Holy Spirit, especially to go to a hostile new land that had so many risks? They were well respected among their neighbors. They were successful in their trades and their businesses. We have heard it was for religious freedom, but they had that in Holland. It's a much deeper issue. Governor Bradford wrote that there were several reasons for leaving the lower lands of Holland. The first one was, he said, Many of their brethren were still under the hand of persecution in England, preferring prisons in England to liberty in Holland. Why would they prefer prison in England to liberty in Holland? We'll see why in just a moment. The second reason for coming to America was many of the brethren were getting older. If something was to be done, now was the time for God's providence. And then the third reason he gave is the main reason. Bradford wrote it was for the dearest children. It was for the dearest children. The main reason the pilgrims came to America was for their kids. In Holland, there was complete religious freedom. There was complete tolerance. There was also every heresy in the world. Holland was a haven for heretics. Their kids were being drawn today in what we call the religious cults. They also found that there was great licentiousness among the young people of, of the city. Uh, what the Puritans called temptations, evil examples, dangerous courses. Their children were becoming rebellious like the young children or the young people around them. Bradford wrote, they saw their posterity would be in danger to degenerate and become corrupt. They were losing their kids to the world, the flesh, and the devil. They were losing their kids. What would you do? A fourth reason they gave is for the laying of the foundation for the propagation advance of the gospel in the kingdom of Christ in the remote, remote parts of the world. They came to fulfill the Great Commission. Some of the reasons for the dangerous trek in life were practical. Some were theological. Some of the brethren preferred prison in England to losing their kids in Holland. They also were getting older, as were their children. Now was the time. This is the time. Those were very practical reasons. In theological terms, they wanted to raise a generation that was loyal to God, and they wanted to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. They really didn't see it as much of a liberty issue, religious liberty issue, at all. So after several months of hard work and negotiating with the economic power brokers in England for the financing, Several of the Puritan separatists left in two ships in hopes of joining with the Virginia colony for safety in the new land. They would join with the Virginia colony, uh, go through the winter, and be able to plant their crops in the spring. And One of the ships they had, called the Speedwell, was overmasted. And, and so it began to take on water, so it had to return with much disappointment to those on board. And so... You know, at this time, the captain and the crew of the Speedwell were hired on for a year, 
and probably more than likely they, they chickened out and they made a reason why the ship wouldn't make it. So the Mayflower went on alone. They, they took people, pilgrims from both ships and took as many as they could and put them on the Mayflower. A little over 100 pilgrims plus the crew on board and it was unheard of at that time for a ship to go it alone, especially that time of year, leaving late in the fall with the winter before them. Their, their goal was to join the safety of the Virginia colony for the winter and then form their own colony a little ways from them in the spring. But they were blown way off course. It was just one storm after another. They would spend days, weeks down in the hull of the ship and not even be able to go up, up on deck. They were blown way off course, but they believed they were still in God's will. Don't ever think there are no storms in the will of God. God's point, appointments can show up as great disappointments. You see, God had a different idea. And finally, they came upon land at Cape Cod. Problem, it was the beginning of winter, November 11th, 1620. And they were far, far north of the safety of the Virginia colony. In fact, they landed at Plymouth Rock during a time that climatologists call today a mini ice age. They landed there during a mini ice age. It was absolutely horrible. They tried to sail south to try to get to the Virginia colony, but the roaring waves, the winds, and dangerous shoals, as they put it, prevented them. It's what we would call today a nor'easter, a perfect storm. So they couldn't go south. Winter, no provisions, in a hostile land, literally. As they put it, the mighty ocean behind them, the wilderness full of beasts and wild men in front of them. And one of the problems was that the Indians north of Virginia, if they saw white people, they would shoot first. You see, all the Indians knew of the white man was that he would come and steal their children. They would take them for slavery in the southern colonies in the Bahamas. You see a white man, he's going to steal your kids. But the pilgrims had landed at the only spot north of Virginia where they would not have been immediately killed by the Indians. You see, a plague just the year before had killed the Indians of that entire immediate area. The village had been raided by white men a couple of years earlier. The women were raped, the children were kidnapped, the rest died of plague. And of all things, the pilgrims found empty villages with corn already stockpiled for next year's planting. They were well aware of the providence of God. Governor Bradford wrote, Our fathers were Englishmen who came over the great ocean and ready to perish in this his wilderness. But they cried unto the Lord, and he heard their voice and looked on their adversity. Let them therefore praise the Lord because he is good and his mercies endure forever. But there was still a hard winter before them. At one time, only, only Miles Standish and two others were even strong enough to minister to the rest of the sick in their cabins. A day's ration was four kernels of corn. Four kernels of corn, knowing that if they ate any more than that, there'd be no planting in the spring. In three months' time, 
half the company died. And half of them were their children. But they came for the sake of their dear children. And now so many of their children lay in frozen graves. And out of the forest came an Indian who spoke English. And he asked them, Have you got any beer? <laughs> and his name was Samoset. And they graciously accommodated him, and Samoset amazingly told them about another Indian who spoke English, even English better than he did. His name was Squanto. Where on earth did Squanto come from? You see, as a boy, Squanto had been captured by slavers and taken to England. Eventually, Squanto was freed, and when he returned to his own land, the land which the pilgrims now inhabited, he found that all of his people had died of plague. Here was an English-speaking Indian alone in his own land. His people had all perished. And Squanto taught the pilgrims how to plant corn, of which they literally only knew beans, where to take fish and other commodities, and he guided them to unknown places and how to use fish for fertilizing the good earth. Bradford called Squanto a special instrument sent by God for their good, a messenger of God's deliverance. Now, if you were a pilgrim that winter, you might look through the cracks of your cabin, your children dying or, or already in the grave, and you would see the elders of the community conferring with an Indian named Squanto, a messenger of God's deliverance. That is faith. That is the faith of our forefathers. That is the faith that they lived for. That is the faith that they died for. Because if your faith cannot at the same time embrace your loss and the messenger of God's deliverance, it is not the faith of God, our Father and Savior, Jesus Christ, that God would give His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. That is the faith we must teach our children. That is the faith that we must embrace. So after that first planting that summer, they sent the fruit of their harvest and other commodities back to England to pay off their lenders. They sent enough pelts, food, and other commodities to pay off their debt and to have some money to buy off needed tools and implements. They sent off the ship. The ship was taken by pirates. There's actually some evidence that it wasn't actually taken by pirates, but their lenders claimed that it never arrived, and they just took the goods. They loaded up a second ship, and it was taken by pirates. What kind of faith does it take to load a third ship, knowing that if they did, it could mean another winter like the last one? But to load it, they did. Because faith says that no matter what the past, no matter what is behind, we will do what is right. We will obey God. We will be faithful and loyal to God no matter what. Because they knew that by faith, that if they put good seed in the ground now, that God would bring it to full fruit. So what about the first Thanksgiving? The pilgrim writers barely mentioned it, 
Bradford doesn't even mention it at all in his 300-plus page journal, The Plymouth Colony. Edward Winslow wrote that, In the autumn of 1621, Bradford declared a three-day festival to praise God and ask for his blessing in their outgoings and incomings. Inviting the Indians which they'd befriended through the summer was almost an afterthought, and it would have driven them back to poverty had not the 90 Indians brought their own five deer to the feast. So what happened to Squanto? In November 1622, while on a trading expedition to the Massachusetts Indians, Squanto came down with Indian fever. His nose began to bleed, and he died. Governor William Bradford, perhaps Squanto's closest friend and associate among the pilgrims, wrote the following about his sudden death. In this place, Squanto fell sick of an Indian fever, bleeding much at the nose, which the Indians take for a symptom of death, and within a few days died there, desiring the governor to pray for him, that he might go to the Englishman's God in heaven and bequeath sundry of his things to sundry of his English friends as remembrance of his love, of whom they had great loss. Squanto died as a believer in Jesus Christ. This Thanksgiving that's coming up this next Thursday is going to look much different this year. We'll have what we could say the the normal empty chairs, the the loss of loved ones this past year. We always grieve and and feel that loss at a holiday. There's going to be the loss of, of a quarter of a million American, Americans who have died of COVID-19. There's also going to be the empty chairs related to travel and, and gathering restrictions and, and the physical distancing. This Thanksgiving, it's, it's just going to be my wife and me. But it is my hope and prayer for you that in knowing and understanding something of the faith and the perseverance of the pilgrims and other examples of faith during very difficult times, maybe even in your own life as God brings that remembrance back to you, that whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we know that this Thanksgiving is going to look very much different. And the losses that we have suffered this year are going to be very much deeper and felt, Father. Father, I pray that as we come into this Thanksgiving week, Lord, that uh, you would minister to each one of us through your Holy Spirit in very special ways. Comfort us in our losses. Father, I pray that your word and your Holy Spirit would come to each one of us at, at those critical times, Father, when we just need to know of your love and your mercy and the great things that you have done, Father. Through your Holy Spirit, give us the ability to persevere. Father, we pray that even as we grieve this time of year, Father, that we can see, Father, your hand in all things and that we will celebrate your mighty works and the great things that you have done for each one of us and give you thanks, Father. Thanks for who you are, what you do for each one of us, Father, and that you are faithful. You are faithful to us. Great is your faithfulness. 
And we give you thanks for this. In Jesus' name, amen.